Welcome to the Vortex Nation podcast, brought to you by lovers of hunting, shooting, public lands, the Second Amendment, and good food. We're coming in hot. Eric's upset. Mark is a little bit uh, worried about that fact. Eric only just learned what we're going to be discussing here about 30 seconds ago. Could be partly why he's upset. Wait, who's upset again? Eric or Mark? I was was fake upset. I was being dramatic. You were upset because Eric was upset. Yeah. Um, I'm a sympathetic crier. (laughs) 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 So the topic for today is why... Why do we hardly ever talk about bow hunting on this podcast? And uh, it's not that it's it's not that it's been like a faux pas or like you know a, a, do, a do not touch. It's just that we're certainly wh- not against it. No, I mean you guys aren't. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm not either. But that's the thing is uh, for whatever reason we haven't talked about it a whole lot. So we're going to discuss it here today. Probably a, probably one of those podcast gears geared more towards the folks who are uh, perhaps more like me in the room right now compared to Eric and Mark, and. Um, being that they haven't really done a whole lot, if any, bow hunting before. And perhaps why you should look into it, or maybe we'll confirm why you haven't. Who knows? Mark. We'll get there. You got you got the chills before we got into this one. Every So just for those who are, are listening right now, if you've listened for a while, you know Mark quite well. And uh, usually I know when we're going to have a pretty exciting one because Mark starts getting the chills, and he always he always points it out. Yep. And uh, the chills quickly came over him when we brought up bow hunting. I'll tell you why, Jim. I love it. Now, there's people that bow hunt a lot more than I do. There's people that bow hunt, that strictly bow hunt. Like, their life revolves around bow hunting. They don't even rifle hunt. They may not rifle hunt. Or they bow hunt during rifle season. Well, yeah. There's those folks, too, right? So, regardless, I love it. I don't do it as much as maybe I'd even like to. It's awesome. It's super fun. There's so many advantages and positives that, like, when we started talking about it, I got excited. I got the chills about it for a variety of reasons, including, hopefully, the opportunity to maybe encourage somebody who hasn't taken up bow hunting to give her a try. Yep. That's why I got the chills. It's happening again. This is perhaps the obvious question in the room, so that's maybe a stupid question or whatever, but I got to ask it, and I feel like we can really get in on it a little bit deeper than perhaps just surface level, but, like... But when you're discussing, when you're talking about bow hunting, the fact that you love it and it's really fun, I get that. But I, I also don't get that. So bow hunting's super fun. Is it because you got to get all this gear and practice with it nonstop? And then you go out and you have like pretty limited range overall. And I mean, what, I get that people really love it, but why? <laughs> I mean, fair enough. Like saying something's fun is like great. Like you think cars are fun, right? True. You know? True. Uh, so it's kind of, you know, pretty pretty general man i like i like the times of year i like the way the animals are acting like you said i like i like the the more intimate nature of it you do have to get closer so i mean you're interacting at these with these animals at extremely close ranges um which can be exciting and heart pounding there's advantages with seasons Mm -hmm. right additional opportunities i mean it's it's really endless like if you're not if you're only rifle hunting you're really cutting your hunting life a little bit short. Yeah. The first thing out of your mouth was the time of year and the way that the animals act during Mm -hmm. that time of year. Can you explain that for somebody? Because if you're one of the people who 
hunts only rifle season, for example, you very well have probably noticed that people are going hunting many times before you. Mm-hmm. And usually they're bow hunters, right? Yep. Why is that? Is the primary primary reason behind archery hunters getting this advance, so to speak? I mean, do they get the advance because it's almost uh, similar to when you have a muzzleloader hunt or a primitive weapons hunt where you know, you say, oh, well, they have a more of a disadvantage, so we're going to let them go outside of this rifle season. Or does it have to do with the fact that the animals are acting differently? So you can get, can you get closer to them during that time or, or what? So, yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a couple things, you know, at play there, Jim. So you're, you're hunting with a, a weapon or, or a tool that, yeah, it's, it's a lot shorter range. You're essentially at a disadvantage, right? Right. Yep. So, you know, the game departments in general kind of, I guess, at least my understanding, they're compensating for that by giving you an early season. And we'll take, we'll take elk, for instance, or yep. we can even talk about deer because yep. there's a lot of advantages with deer, Eric, right. as yep. you know. Yep. But so, uh, like elk, you're going to have a rut hunt, right? So, or at least in some, in September, the elk are, they're rutting, uh, they're callable. They're maybe a little bit. They haven't uh, been hunted yet. They haven't been hunted yet. They're coming off five, six months of nobody messing with them. Yep. So they're, they've been unpressured other than probably some preseason scouting, you know, they're, um, more paying attention. Apps to make, more prone to make mistakes. Yes. Preoccupied. Right. Uh, their guard is down a little bit. Their guard is down. Guard is down, emotions high. Yep. Right? Love is in the air. And Quite who, literally. And who isn't, you know, yeah. a little bit more prone to make mistakes when yep. when you're in that kind of a headspace, you know? Yep. And then, you know, you're, uh, the weather's nice. I yep. like that, right? You're yep. not generally freezing your you-know-what off. And then, you know, talking about deer, Eric, you've been scouting your you-know-what off lately. Mm-hmm. But deer aren't rutting that time of year. Right. But they're in their summer patterns. Yeah. And like you said, totally impressed. I mean, let, maybe even just talk about what you've been seeing lately. Yeah. So two things. Be- just before that, you kind of mentioned like how game management agencies like, you know, give bow hunters a longer season. So in, in Wisconsin specifically, back when I worked at the DNR, we did like a, we always analyze how many deer are killed during the gun deer season. We have the nine day gun deer season, which is one of the, times where there are most hunters in the woods in the state, you know, at any time. The past few years, the overall gun harvest has been declining, but yet the total deer kill in the state is staying the same. So people are still killing the same amount of deer. It's just a matter of when and what weapon they're choosing to, to hunt with that's ending in that end result. So now we're seeing a trend where we're kind of in Wisconsin specifically, we're seeing a few less gun hunters, but we're seeing more archery hunters. So it's interesting to see that kind of like you take away a little bit and then you add a little bit on the other side of the scale. That's that's bizarre. Does that have anything to do with the crossbows coming in? It does, yes. Okay, because as you mentioned that, I'm hearkening back to in many ways I look at the the bow and arrow is like the manual transmission of hunting, you know, and yep. And you you think of people nowadays. There's so many there's so many examples of it. And cars, of course, is what I naturally gravitate toward. But there's so many other examples of where people are moving away from the old primitive, quote unquote. Uh, of course, you look at some of the bows nowadays. There's nothing primitive about them, right? But the the quote unquote primitive way of doing things, the old school, the more elbow grease, and everybody's moving towards the more mm-hmm. automated ways of doing things. And so you would think that it'd be natural that everybody would be getting ready to just pick up a rifle, right? Right. Uh, rather than doing something that it seems takes more skill, and yeah. practice, and yeah. time, and 
Well, the other thing that's surprising to me there is, you know, we kind of keep hearing about this overall decline, right? So I would have almost expected to see those harvest rates going down together. Like, together, right? Um, and along with that, or I guess I'd you know focus group of one here, right? Because yeah. I love to bow hunt, and I also love to gun hunt yep. as well. So I would I would have assumed that those folks who may have picked up a bow or a crossbow, uh, we can in Wisconsin, we can hunt with crossbows during our, yeah. our, our archery season, would still be gun hunting and, you know, possibly taking an additional animal. And, and that's... Especially if you're using a crossbow. Right. You know, you're, I mean, like, you know, again... It's basically again, a gun pe- that shoots arrows. Uh, people will debate that they are or aren't more effective. Oh, man. Uh, that I was just... so diplomatic. <laughs> Jimmy was not as diplomatic. <laughs> Triggered. I, just, uh... I think what Jim's trying to say there... Uh, Leave your comments below. <laughs> <laughs> Did I just um, drop a pretty huge bomb there into the archery world? <laughs> I think it's, it's like I said, it, it gets debated there, yep. you know, and I think people, there's feelings at all ends of the spectrum. I know where I... I don't know. Here's what I'll say. <laughs> Again, focus group of one. Like, yeah. I'm I'm all number one. I'm all for anything that gets somebody in the woods for the first time or more or at all. Right? We yeah. Need, we need more folks out there. And actually, I'm okay having crossbows during the regular archery season. I am. Like, yeah. I don't, I yeah. don't care. Right. I do think though. Like, I think back on the opportunities that I've. I usually say something different. Uh, flubbed up, and a lot of them happen. Because I was either trying to draw my bow or I had to stay at full draw with my bow to where, like, I'm pretty confident with the crossbow, like, would have got him. Like I said, yeah, I'm okay with crossbows. I'm just saying I think there is a difference. Right, right. Okay, right, right, right. Yeah. And then, so the other question. But the the crossbows coming into play were probably also part of the reason why the archery harvest has has either gone up or increased. Okay. Because now that's become a thing. So it it just makes it a little bit more. Now, were they finding that people, you know what, I I guess I've already dropped some politically incorrect bombs, apparently. Oh, keep them coming. Were they finding that the people getting crossbills were just your average Joe and Jane, or were they finding that a lot of the people that were coming in then were more, um, say, perhaps handicapped in some kind of a way that required the use of a crossbow, you know? Is that happening, or did those people, uh, did those folks already have the opportunity to hunt with a crossbow? Yes. Okay. So for, for, for years prior to this... You had to basically qualify to sh- shoot a crossbow during the, hunt, the bow hunting season. Okay. And that was like some kind of injury or, you know, whatever. You, you basically had to have the doctor's letter. Yeah, something prevented to, you from having the ability to draw. Right. Bow. Yes. And now they've gone, they've opened it up to where anyone can use a crossbow. You just have to denote that you're going to be doing so, and then you get a separate license. So they are able to kind of track whether or not the deer was harvested with a compound bow or, or a traditional bow or a crossbow. So a lot of the, the purists have been, their argument has been, well, now that we have crossbows out there on the landscape, we're seeing you know all these deer getting killed before the gun deer season opens up. And while you definitely have more people in the woods bow hunting now than you did prior to that, I don't think right now there's anything that really supports that. You know, yeah, you have more you have more people in the woods, but that's just uh, that comes along with it when you open up more opportunity. Yeah. Right. They're not able to pin, to my knowledge, they're not able to pin that crossbows are 
responsible for, let's say, 45% of the, the harvest where compounds are for the rest of the archery harvest. There's, okay. I don't think there's anything like that just yet. Right. Well, so. and I feel like we've had like we've had this argument already. Like yep. it happened when we started putting wheels on our bows. Yeah, exactly. Right? It's the same thing. You know, you look at the trad. You know, people who've you know done traditional archery for years, and all of a sudden compounds hit the scene. And I oh, feel right. like you we're guys. almost just like reliving this thing just with crossbows. You guys and your stupid wheelie bows. <laughs> I love it. Yep. <laughs> yep. And, and then like the the other side of that coin is. Um, with that, with the the wheelie bows, the compound bows, it's it's interesting because in like the early two thousands, you saw like okay, this bow hit three hundred feet per second. It's a speed demon. Now next the next year, it's like three fifteen. Then all of a sudden, I feel like several years ago, it kind of topped out at like three hundred forty feet per second, three hundred fifty feet per second, and speed was this huge craze in the archery world. And then since then, I would say that prob- that phase probably climaxed about five years ago and since then five f- ten, f- 10 to five years ago yeah. and since then you've almost seen it kind of like calm back down a little bit like mark and i were just talking this morning like we both kind of feel like the best arrow speed where you can get the most the best arrow flight and the most like your most tunability out of your bow is right around 280 285 feet per second yep. so a lot of these speed crazed bows People are almost, you know, you buy the bow that shoots 340, 350 feet per second, then automatically you start tuning it down, shooting a heavier arrow, you know, decreasing your draw weight, all that stuff mm, to, yeah. to get it, to sh- get this, you know, speed demon and now come down to that 280 threshold. Well, and then, I mean, do you remember that? I mean, there was kind of a period of time there where overdraws were like all the craze yeah. where you essentially, I guess, extended your arrow shelf back. Yep. And so you could shoot a much shorter, lighter arrow and gain speed, but you just don't really see that anymore. Right. Can I bring something up? All this talk about tuning and stuff with your bow. Uh, Mark, for a guy who always says that when it comes to rifles, you know, hey, these bullets come in a box of 20 and I can get this rifle from the factory and it works. Yep. Yet you go out and you shoot bow and arrow. You got to tune your arrows and tune your bow and tune your whatever. I mean, what... But like I gotta say, archery people, and I know I'm starting to get into yeah, it yeah. myself, and I'm like cringing and kicking myself <laughs> as, I, as I get into it myself. Archery people, there's so much more. I feel like I actually we just we've just started some reloading, and you're gonna hear about it soon on the on the podcast here for those listening. Uh, I'd rather do that as I'm listening to more and more people talk about. Oh, you know, you gotta you gotta tweak the something shelf i don't remember what it was you got to something about that you got to tweak where your knock is located you got to shoot it at paper then you got to shoot it all these other distances yep there's so much stuff i mean it's definitely a, a technical you know intricate activity right which you know again for dudes that and dudettes that love to to reload right that's that tinkering is part of the right. fun right and you, you know you're sorting it out I'll I'll say this for my when I bow hunt, like I said, there's people that are way more into it. I mean, I love it, right. but there's people that are into it from that tinkering aspect. When I get yeah. my bow set up, I'm going to a pro shop. Fantastic point because the the pro shops, your local mom and pop pro shop, is kind of like a dying breed right now. Like you know, it's it, we're just seeing less and less of them. Yeah, but they are still the best place. Like if if you want to get into bow hunting and you, but you don't necessarily want to 
find the perfect arrow that flies the best through paper at 20 yards or whatever. That's just an example. You can go to your local pro shop and say, hey, I want to deer hunt this fall. I need a bow that's going to kill a white-tailed deer. I need an arrow and a broadhead that's going to get the job done. Can you help me find that? They're going to be able to help you with all that. Oh, well, so, no, some You don't have to do all that crap yourself. Exactly. Yep. You can just literally walk into a pro shop. Those are the most knowledgeable folks out there, and they're going to be able to pick any of the bow off the shelf. You can give them a budget that you're trying to stay within, and they'll find a setup that's going to work for you. It doesn't... It it is not that hard to kill a white-tailed deer with a bow, Theor- like physically speaking, you know? Yep. As far, you mean as far as getting the gear? Exactly. Okay. Yep, yep. As far as getting the gear, getting it tuned properly, right? and then um, becoming proficient enough with it to shoot it, you know, probably very accurately from 20 to 30 yards, and, yeah. and even beyond, in, in fairly short order. And again, that, that shop, they're going to help you pick the bow. They're going to take your measurements. They're going to fit it to you. They're going to find something that fits your budget, and they're going to be able to marry the right components to that bow that are going to suit you and your needs. Yeah. And then then, then it's up to you to, you to practice. Right, exactly. So really, I just got myself in my own problem when I got a trad bow, right? Yeah, you really put yourself in a pickle there, Jim, because now it's all on you. Okay. <laughs> well, you know, and I shouldn't say that because there's awesome people that teach amazing classes yeah. out there. There's awesome YouTube channels. Yep. Right. So there's a lot of information out there. We're there lucky is. in that regard. Yep. And then you got to practice. Yep. But to your question earlier, like you're talking about deer behavior and all that stuff. Oh, yeah. One of the really cool things about it is you get that first crack at, at the whatever animal it is that you're going after before anyone else has hit the woods. So if you, like, for example, you talked about scouting. Right now is my favorite time to be scout. We're in mid-August right now, so we're about a month away from Wisconsin's bow opener, and now is my favorite time to be out there scouting because you can pick up on a pattern or find, like, the hot sign, find out what the deer are doing right now before the season is opened, and there you, you can kind of take advantage of those them having their guard down, you yep. know, of, of not really – they haven't adjusted to pressure yet. That first weekend is a blank slate. Everyone has their opportunity to get out there and try and shoot a buck or, you know, shoot a deer before everyone else has kind of got out there and messed with them. And then they kind of, then, then in-season scouting becomes that much more important. But for the early first weekend, first couple weeks of the season, you can really capitalize on that scouting that you do ahead of time. Well, and then, yeah, you, you scout a little bit. Maybe you find some, some bucks. You at least know they're there. Right? Yeah, you may not kill them, but you know they're there, and and so that gives you a high confidence level when you hit that area early. And then, like you said, Eric, these these deer we're talking about deer specifically right now, and maybe even more specifically white-tailed deer. Yeah, yeah, they're on have... summer patterns. Right. They are pattern patternable. They're gonna they're gonna be on a consistent program where you might be, like you said, opening day. You might be able to capitalize on that and yep. be done pretty early, which is. A blessing and a curse. Yeah, and, and and you don't have to feel like, and I think it applies to elk and mule deer too. I could be wrong. I haven't elk hunted yet, but I do think it even does apply a little bit to mule deer as well. But like last year, this was with whitetails. It was the week before the archery season. I had scouted all these other places. There was a spot that I had just kind of like left unchecked off my radar. And I went in there the Sunday before our archery season opened, so six days before opening day. Went in there to hang a camera, and there was just there was sign everywhere. There was a few early scrapes opening up. There were a few rubs that literally had like they were so fresh they still had velvet like it interlaced. I mean that is it. insane to me. That is so early. I yeah. mean we're talking what around September fifteenth. It was September seventh. 
I have, I, I'm pretty sure I have photos of my, on my phone of like these super fresh rubs and fresh scrapes. And I knew that like next weekend, that's where I needed to be and went off that hot sign and got lucky. There were a bunch of other people hunting the area. So it just as well could have been someone else, but got lucky and shot a buck that Sunday of the season. So season lasted a day and a half, you know, in Wisconsin last year. And how did that make you feel? Good, because then I bought more tags in other states, <laughs> <laughs> which made my wife feel very mad. Speaking of upset. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, that's one of the advantages, I think, to, like, getting that first crack at animals that once the gun season in Wisconsin, you know, just using that as an example, and that's, I think, pretty representative of a lot of the states, you're coming in there at a time that is usually post-rut, the animals have already done their breeding, and the archery hunters have already kind of pressured them, for lack of a better word. They've been out there messing with them, trying to get in range, spooking animals, mm-hmm. missing them, stuff like that. So if you are all exclusively gun hunting, you're kind of taking a lot of that. If you look at the season as a pizza pie, you take a, the majority of that pizza and you put it off to the side, and now you, you're focusing on two slices of it. Right. You know, whereas if you are archery hunting, you are muzzleloader hunting, you're, then you got the whole pie. Right. Well, exactly. Exactly. I mean, you look at like if you love to hunt, you know, which if you're hunting, you probably do. Yep. And you're only rifle hunting. It's like, my goodness, like you could be extending your season for months. Right. Right. You know, and, you know, you look at a state like, uh, oh, like, well, like Wisconsin, right? The way our seasons are structured, you can buy a gun buck tag and an archery buck tag. Yep. So you're looking at potentially being able to shoot two bucks or at least hunt two bucks. Yeah. You look like a state. Look at a state like Nebraska. You know, you can shoot two bucks, and that you know, and check check regulations change, so check them. Yeah, you know, yeah. that at time of date, this is how I understand it. But Nebraska, you can buy two archery tags, you can buy two muzzleloader tags, or you can buy one rifle tag and a muzzleloader tag, or, or an arch- you can have two buck tags, only one of which can be a gun deer tag, right? Right. right. Or a state like um, Montana, right? Yeah. You can buy an elk tag, and you can hunt the archery season. Yep. which is pretty long archery season, if you don't fill that tag, you can roll that over into the next season and hunt with the weapon that's specified for that season. Which is awesome. That's yep. amazing. Yep. You know, and then some states aren't like that. You look like Washington, my home state. If you buy an archery tag, you're hunting the archery season. Yep. If you're buying a muzzleloader tag, you're hunting the muzzleloader season. So every, different states are structured different ways, but they do open up uh, different slash additional slash unique opportunities. Right. You know, it could be different for everybody. Somebody who follows all archery stuff might feel differently than I do. But what you guys are saying, it, the rifle season definitely, it, it's its seeming, as you talk, more and more uh, shorter and shorter to me. Is it the yes. case? Is it the case everywhere? Everybody, I feel like what I, what I follow and subscribe to makes it seem as though rifle hunting is the hunting. And archery hunting is just kind of something that happens. Too. Yeah. But actually, no, it's it's only a small little piece. Is it is it the case in yep. a lot of other places too? Yep. Like Definitely. your rifle chances are only in very mm-hmm. relatively slim periods of time. Take uh take you, you know like a state like Illinois or Iowa where they have like Illinois like I think they only have two full weekends of of uh statewide shotgun season. Oh, you yeah, know? they don't even have rifle. Yeah. Regular centerfire cartridge. Right. So if, if you know they don't. So if you're a weekend warrior kind of guy, you're you're limited to like 4 days, you know. Right. Whereas if you are bow hunting, you have 
you know, you have October 1st through end of January and you start of February in some counties. Oh, wow. So, yeah, and, and a lot of that is attributed to your reduced chances of yeah. success. You know, you have a lower odds of uh, killing an animal because your range is limited and all stuff like that. But Which is why you just get really good at it. Exactly. Yep, figure it out. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah. you know, and then we've talked a lot about early season opportunities, rut opportunities, but that, then there's yeah. also a lot of late, late season opportunities. Yep. And I, I think the rut opportunities is the one that's most attractive to people. There are some states where you can gun hunt during the rut, but the majority of states, your rut hunt, your quintessential hunting during the peak of the rut, whether that's, you know, elk, which is going to be in September, or mule deer and whitetails, which is going to be in, you know, late October, or, you know, throughout the first couple of weeks in November, that's always quintessential bow season. So that is like the, if, if there's one reason to do it, yeah, your odds of getting an animal in range is a lot lower with archery equipment, but during the rut, anything can happen, you anything know? Anything can happen. And you've got a really cool element in both those things or both the seasons with either deer or elk where you have that calling interaction, yep. which again, here come the chills, Jim. Yep. There they are. <laughs> yep. He's got them. It's a real thing, folks. Yep. Um, <laughs> dude, like elk during the rut, like just amazing. Whitetails during the rut. Amazing. Yeah, you, I you mean, get to see the best animal behavior of the season right there. What are the whitetail, what are they doing primarily? I know the elk, you know, you see all the videos and they're like, Wah! you know, making all that crazy yep. sound. Yep. What do the whitetails do? Or do they make like a big sound or is it just kind of the way they act? I mean, they do grunt and they will snort wheeze, which is like, uh, you know, like if a, if an elk bugle is a And gr- we're going to have Eric do one here right now. <laughs> All right, there you go. Yep. Snort wheeze. Burp, 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 burp. They also burp. Yeah, yeah, they burp. They walk around the woods burping and wheezing at things. Yeah. Being and, really ticked off. And it's amazing. But yeah, yeah. I mean, okay, like, so you that, know, oh, I was going to say, like, I mean, a lot of people, you know, talk about, you know, this bull elk bugling and the scream is just like, yeah, and it is yeah. off the charts. But like, if you're in the whitetail woods on a cold, crisp day and all of a sudden you just hear that, burp. Right, and then you give them a couple of those things back, and all of a sudden those leaves start. You're like, "Oh God, he's coming!" Like, yeah, I mean, it's cool. It, so that 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 explains too another thing that I always wondered when I saw you watch videos and things of people that are archery hunting. I always wondered to myself, how the heck are they getting so close? Yeah, and I'm they got to be screwing up stuff all the time, right? That and that just doesn't make it to the highlight reel. Mm-hmm. But it's got to be that that rut thing. Oh yeah, because you, you hear all you hear all kinds of people talk all the time about how difficult deer are to hunt, and I'm not going to say that I'm saying they're not difficult to hunt, but I, I kept wondering because and I think it's because of all the videos I'd watch. Yeah, I just kept seeing people within 15 yards yep. of a deer, 10 yards of a deer, and just thwap, thwap, thwap. Yep. And I'm like, geez, they make it seem like you could practically just be walking out of the woods tripping over deer. Which it's some during the rut. If you're ever gonna have that time where like you're literally just walking into the woods and get a quick buck, that's when it's gonna happen. You know, like I mean, you could do it with no scouting, with never jumping into a place yeah. before. Like you said, Eric, anything can happen. Yep. I mean, and you you hunt whitetails a heck of a lot more than I do. But one thing I was gonna have you because we're talking about the rut. So yeah. Eric, describe maybe like in contrast, like a mid October hunt, bow hunt for whitetails versus like a first. 10 days of November right. for whitetails. So, like, the first... So, so that's a difference of, what, two weeks? Um, three weeks? Two to three weeks, yeah. yeah. Which, which, like, seems like such a 
tiny, you know, frame of time. Exactly. But really so much changes in the matter of days when you're talking about rut activity, yeah. you know? Well, so, hey, look at some of those guys used to come back after World War II. They got married in like two to three weeks. So exactly. that was prime rut, rut time, baby boom. Look at look at a bar on a slow Tuesday. <laughs> look at a bar on a slow Tuesday night, and then look at that same bar on Friday and Saturday night. And yeah, the rut's the rut in full is on. swing. <laughs> yep, exactly. <laughs> Just in a matter of a couple of days. You know, aliens are probably tuning into this podcast yeah. right now, and they are preparing based on the human rut cycle. Yep, I've been going to the bar on the wrong night. Yeah, we're only yep. hunting Fridays and Saturdays Club's now. Clubs <laughs> now going up on a Tuesday yep. after all. Yep, okay. exactly. What were you saying? It was more important. Than yeah, what I so up. like you know, your mid. October sign or your mid October time frame is going to be a lot more laid back and you need to be more like surgical with your hunt. I think uh, you, you walk into the same wood lot in early to mid November and you might walk in there and there's going to be sign all over the place because you've had all of September, all of October, and then maybe the first few days in November to accrue deer sign, whether that's a scrape, a rub you know, a trail that's just beaten down. So in October, when you do find that sign, when you find like a, a rub line that is, you know, rub, by rub line, I mean, you know, you look and there's a tree that's rubbed. And so let's say north, south, east, west, you got your, your basic directions. On the east side of every tree, there's a rub. You know that that deer is coming from the east because he's walking and rubbing stuff in the same direction. So on a late October hunt, you can look at that tree See, okay, I have 10 rubs here within 100 yards. Every rub is on the east side of the tree. I'm going to keep going further and further east and set up as close to where I think that deer is spending the most of its time. He's not going to be walking around in daylight as much as he might be in November. But if you can get really close to where he is hanging out by reading something like a scrape or a rub or something like that, and spending the most of your time really close to him, you might get lucky and have him stand up out of wherever he's hanging out, out of his bed usually, and you might get him 100 yards from where he kind of lives. What, do they only rub on their way out, not their way back? So it, they will rub on the way out and back. Usually what you can do is you're kind of piecing together the puzzle a little bit by when you're looking at the sign. So uh, a lot of times, you know, you know you'll find an area where you can look at a map and be I, and think to yourself, I bet that's where they're spending the most of their time. So, for example, if you're walking into a piece of land that you're hunting and right up by the field edge, you see a bunch of rubs from the field edge going back deeper into the timber, you can assume that those are nighttime rubs that are happening after the deer comes out into the insecurity of a wide open field at night to eat. And then those rubs are being made as he's going back into bed in the morning. Oh, okay. So in that instance... Probably not chilling out in the middle of the wide open. Right, exactly. Okay. So in that, And that actually is a great point because in that scenario, what you would do is you would have that in mind that, okay, those deer are feeding out in this field at the nighttime hours. I'm going to get in super early in a morning hunt and I'm going to get behind where they're... So if the field is to the west, the cover is to the east... You're going to get behind them and get into the east and and wait for that deer to come off the field and come back into his, you know, quote-unquote bedding area. Yeah, you're going to cut him okay. off before he gets yep. to his bedding location. It's essentially an uh, ambush, you know. Yeah, like you're, yeah. you're waiting for him to come back home and put an arrow through his It's legs. a trap. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. It's definitely a trap. And what, So what happens if... Uh, no, I'm just, what happens if the wind's on your favor and you got to go back and the wind's going from yep. you down to the deer as he comes back? So that's the hard part about like that October time frame is you got to wait till it is like r really, really 
perfect. You know, you're not going to just throw hazard to the wind and go in and be like, all right, I'm just going to hope that he comes from a different way today. Be, you know, because odds are he's not during that time frame. He's very, especially if it's an older deer, he's probably very methodical with his movements. He probably only moves under certain conditions and stuff like that. So then you would wait until you have those perfect conditions, and then you'll try and get oh, in there. Oh, because if you blow it up and then you educate him on where you are, you, you, you're yep. back to square one. Exactly. Having you, to find him again. Yep. You hear, uh, like, our friends at the hunting public talk about spots all the time that are a, a one or two hunt spot, you know? And, like, they, they, for example, they just did one where they talked about this spot that's like the hub of wheel. It's, like, literally 50 yards off the road, off a gravel road. Aaron shot a deer there last year where you could literally see the car is parked on the road, and this buck walked right across the road. It's my kind of spot. Exactly. So now the weird thing is about that. Hashtag shit crazy. What up? Yeah. <laughs> road hunter. Yep. Exactly. So the the you know being talking speaking about the one hunt spot, that's one of those areas where you just you got one or two chances at it. So you're not going to go in there when everything is. You're not going in there unless everything is buttoned up in exactly how you want it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So now to contrast that in November during the rut hunt, you're going to go in and you're probably less focused on sign because if you are taking sign into consideration, you're going to be overwhelmed because there's going to be way more scrapes, way more rubs, you know, just there's a lot of sign in the woods that time of year. So a lot of times what you'll do is you'll focus on where the majority of the deer does, especially are kind of hanging out, you know, people... Uh, there, there's always the debate about like baiting and stuff like that. Well, during the rut, the best bait pile that you have is a uh, group of does that are hanging out and laying in a area consistently. So then you'll hunt the downwind sides of those bedding areas, and then you'll get bucks cruising from where they're hanging out to where you know the does are, and they're just walking on the downwind sides of that. You always hear the term cruising. Cruising, all that is, is bucks moving from one spot to another with the wind in a way that they can smell what is upwind to them. Mm-hmm. That's all cruising is. Oh, okay. And then... And you're down... Well, and they're probably crisscrossing, like essentially crossing over, not taking yep. these doe trails that are heading back to the bedding, and they might pick up a hot doe... Exactly. That's gone either in or out of there, or like you said, or is bedded down yep. in there. A few years ago, I, I shot a buck that was 100% doing that. He was... There was I was set up on a ridge top where I was way up high and there were there was really good bedding on each side of the ridge. So hmm. the ridge came up to a high point. There was good bedding in this bottom, good bedding on the other bottom. And the buck that I ended up killing that afternoon was literally just walking the top of that ridge and, you know, scent checking the intersecting doe trails that went up and over the ridge from one bottom to the next. So it basically kind of did a uh, upside down U-shaped mo- movement if you're looking at that from like a topography standpoint mm-hmm. whereas he was just right walking right on top of that ridge you know trying to check for any scent of those that were in the area recently so so you want to be if i'm following you right they're going to be cruising which means they want to be walking towards does but also having the wind coming from the direction they're walking to yep. so that way they can sense smell what's ahead of them yes right and you want to be not ahead of them when they're going towards the doe. Right. You want to be on their way back. Sort of. So it's you'll you'll hear the term just off wind. Just off wind. So for example, let's say it is a let's say I, we keep using east to west. We have a uh, oh, that's easy. Yeah, there's a a buck that that hangs out. 
he beds to the east. There's a lot of does that bed northwest of him. What he's going to do is walk east to west on a northwest wind or a north wind, kind of like a crosswind. Or sometimes, too, you'll hear about bucks that really, or there's a lot of theories out there that bucks like to move with the wind at their back. So, in a situation like that, if he is coming from the east, it's like having eyes in the back of their head. Exactly, because they can look and they can see what's in front of them and then they can smell whatever is mm-hmm. upwind of them. Right. So, that just off wind theory is okay if it makes the most sense for a buck to be moving in a spot with a due north wind you might want to get in there on like a northwest and north northwest so you still so the wind still sets up and makes sense for that buck to use that travel corridor but it is just enough westerly breeze in that north wind that you can get in there and get really close without blowing your wind right in the direction that he's usually approaching from. Hmm. So you're kind of threading the needle. If you're, you're getting as close as you can without him hopefully being able to pick you off. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And you're going to spook a lot of deer doing wind that. Wind is so crazy. Yeah. There's yep. like literally particles of us floating out there. Yeah. And it's just entering deer taste buds. Yep. I'm going to bring something up. That I find, like, you know, and you talked about winds. Okay, the wind's out of this way and out of that way, and so set up here, which I generally try to do. But why is it when I get in the tree 100% of the time, uh, the wind switches every five minutes? I know. <laughs> well, <laughs> and then, it like, shouldn't be literally surprising. Within, like, a couple minutes, I'm like, okay, cool. I, you know, I can essentially hunt this 180 of, and that's where, if I'm going to get a crack at a deer, it's going to be, and then... Five minutes later, I'm like, okay, I'm going to hunt this other 180. Yeah. No, and I'm, not, and I'm not talking about 180-inch deer. I'm talking about 180 degrees of a circle. Yeah. yeah. It uh, shouldn't surprise us, though. We were just out of the vortex extreme where the wind seemed to change every five seconds. Yeah. yeah. That's true. Oh, you got a hold left. Okay, I held left. Nope, nope, you missed left. So yeah. go back to the right. Oh, you missed right that time. Well, well we're out of shots. On to the next stage. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And it does seem like like we, when we were at the, the extreme, we were in the mountains, basically. And here in southwest Wisconsin, we're in like the hill country, the driftless area. So in those hilly areas, it does seem like you deal with way more swirling. If you're in like flat you know, northern Illinois farmland. Okay, yeah, sure. I think you got a little bit more consistencies that you can play with there. And there's always going to be things like, uh, um, man, I wish I knew who mentioned. It was like Dan Infault or Joe Elzinger. One of those guys mentioned once where if you're hunting an area where you have water, and this was super interesting to me. So, like, let's say you're hunting near a lake or near a pond or something like that. You might have a wind that that is blowing from the pond to you, mm-hmm. but as the sun starts to go down, your thermals will override the wind. So even if the wind is coming from the pond to you, your scent thermals, and you can confirm this with, by throwing milkweed in the air, are going to get sucked down to that pond almost regardless of what the wind is doing, especially if it's a light breeze. Unless it's wow. really gusty, you can pretty much bank on your scent falling down towards water when you're hunting near it, which I just thought that was really interesting. Really weird. Noted. Yeah. Wow. So scent's got to be a pretty, obviously, as we've discussed, pretty big thing when you're archery hunting. Are Is most of the time when you're archery hunting, are you mostly posted up, sitting still, waiting for something to go by? Yeah. Or are you running, gunning? <laughs> the most, most of the stuff that I've seen, people are... Post it up in one spot sitting, and then mm-hmm. something happens to walk by just the right time, right moment, right place, and they take a shot. But also, I got to know, because I also feel like I've heard of it, I just haven't seen it as much. I got to know there's people out there kind of running gunning. Oh, right? yeah, especially for elk and mule deer. Like mm-hmm. that, how, that, does that, how does that happen? I mean, I, I think for elk and mule deer... Just takes 
a thousand blown stocks and then one good one? I mean, I mean, oftentimes, I mean, like I said, most, right? I mean, people yeah. definitely hunt elk out of tree stands and they hunt mule deer out of tree stands yep. at times. But I'd say most of it is run and gun, spot and stock, trying to, uh, and, and then trying to set up a calling scenario where you can call, you know, you've gotten yourself to a location, the wind is right, maybe you ripped a bugle and you got a response. Then you're, you know, refining your setup, trying to get closer, yep. close the distance, and put yourself in the right spot for, you know, that bull to come through and hopefully get a shot, which never, well, sometimes I get shots at him. I just uh, don't hit him. But, uh, <laughs> uh, a lot of trees in the woods with uh, arrows. Oh in my gosh. <laughs> um, and so, and then, you know, mule deer, I mean, essentially it's almost like a close, I'd say in general, right? Probably yeah. maybe like a up close game. That's really not dissimilar to how you would hunt them with a rifle. Yeah. You just have to get closer, you know, I mean, oftentimes people say like where, where rifle hunting ends, bow hunting begins. Right. And, and I think there's a lot of truth to that because, you know, and I'm not saying that rifle hunting is easy by making the statement because I, right. You know, it's not, it's like, not flat out, but where you might be able to glass up a buck and potentially even just take the shot from yeah. where you were glassing from, uh, not always, uh, now you're planning your stock with the bow. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, perfect example would be the time when we took that one in, Nebraska, that was a shot that we could have taken with a rifle, 225 yards wouldn't be a poke with a bow. Right. Right. But when you see that and you have a rifle, you think to yourself, oh my gosh, this is like an ideal shot. This is perfect. Yeah. I don't even have to go on maximum magnification. It's just like, you know, I felt close to my deer. With a bow, it would have been like, yeah, that thing's forever away. Right. Right. When you're talking about mule deer there, I kind of had a epiphany, so to speak, of, so we always talk, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Light bulb went on. It, uh, the world makes sense after this podcast. I'm just going home because I just figured it all out. <laughs> um, so we talk about a lot of times, especially with whitetails, setting up close to where they're bedding and all that stuff. So mule deer isn't that dissimilar to whitetails. You're, the, the big thing is typically if you are spot and stalk hunting mule deer, you're glassing them up from a long ways away. It's more open country. It's more open country. Like last year, you know, I was out in the Badlands where there's like literally no trees, you know, and you, I could I spotted a buck probably 800 yards away, something like that. And I got down and was able to make a stalk on him. And now, so we, we talked about bedded whitetails. Now what you would do if you're hunting whitetails there is you're getting as close to that bed and then you're probably setting up. Now you can't see the deer because there's tree cover on the landscape in whitetail country, whereas mule deer country is wide open. Mm-hmm. So you might try and close that extra 15, 50 yards, whatever it is, and then actually get a shot at him when he's in his bed or, or close to it. Mm-hmm. The only difference there is in the whitetail game, you can't really see just because of the nature of the landscape. You're still trying to get really close to that bed. You're kind of predicting based off your scouting and your map research where those bedding areas are, and you're accessing it just like you would on a spot and stalk mule deer hunt, but then you're setting up and kind of waiting on that ambush. So that's kind of the parallels I think that you can draw from, like, if you are a mule deer guy that's thinking about whitetail hunting, that's the parallel you can draw, and I think the same can be said vice versa. Hmm. Well, yeah, and, you know, I mean, whitetails aren't the only deer hitting egg either, right? right. So we're talking, you know, you're talking about earlier, like, read and rub sign, um, which, you know, may not be something that you're finding uh, on, on maybe a, a mule deer buck that's hitting an egg field, but you can implement a lot of those same tactics. I'm going to try and intercept him before right. he gets to that egg field, yep. or I'm going to try and intercept him on his way back and you do you might have the luxury maybe you can watch that buck for a couple days from afar figure out his program and then really set up to execute because like we talked about you might only get one or two tries right you know and and if you blow him out the first time 
he might change his program. Yep, exactly. Exactly. That's why I think a lot of guys that are going on those, like, they have a five- to seven-day hunt that they're going on. I think a lot of the guys that are consistently successful, speaking to mule deer specifically, the guys that are really consistent in, in harvesting deer are way more patient than yeah. the guy like myself who goes out there and like sees a buck. It's like, all right, it's on. Let's go get him. You know, the guy who really is kind of seasoned and has probably done it before, yep. he's going to sit there. He'll watch that deer maybe today, maybe tomorrow again, and maybe again on the third day before he even makes a move. Mm-hmm. And then he's surgical on that move. And then, you know, he either gets it or he doesn't. I've talked to guys. I've never hunted high country mule deer with the bow. But, I, I mean, guys are doing the same. They're like, yeah, I watched that deer for four days in the basin and figured out his program or were extremely patient, just yep. making sure, like, hey, waiting for him to put himself into maybe a more stockable spot where I'm like, he's going to, like, if I don't do it now, he's going to go away. Yeah, he won't be there tomorrow. Yeah. Well, so, hmm. like I said, I think those are, <laughs> that's why those guys are getting them. Yeah. Is what you just discussed there, is that more of a all the time kind of thing that people are doing or is that more of a rut hunt thing that people are doing? Because you also discussed too that you can do this late season thing. Yeah. I think what we were just describing, we bounced around a little bit, but you know, talking about mule deer like in a high basin or on egg. I mean, I guess they might hit egg in the late season as well, but I guess I was in my head mentally, I was thinking like early season, high country. Summer patterns. Summer patterns. Yep. Yep. They haven't haven't begun to rut. They haven't pushed down yet. Which we should talk about late season though, because it's interesting. You know, you get you, you, we talked about how your first few days of the season can be your best odds if you kind of done your scouting homework. Yeah, so the late season must be impossible. It's just a waste of time. Which is exactly what you would think, but it's weird because all of a sudden it flips again and it becomes another early season with yep. snow. You know, like all, you you go from early season where they're Here, shut on, up, stop, <laughs> stop, wait, stop. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Keep going. You so get, how does it become more like an early season again? Yep. So their patterns all of a sudden revert right back to where they were three, four months ago. Because they're like, oh, man, finally the gunshot stopped. That well, and their their behavior, their biological behavior changes. So the rut is come and gone. Okay. Now they're super worn out. They're not focused on does anymore as much as they were a few months ago. And they're much more focused on like food sources and Recovery. stuff. Didn't they just? Yeah, didn't they just go through essentially a very traumatically hard time of year? Yep. For them, They've, yeah, you know, it, like elk isn't the or deer, they've run themselves pretty ragged. Yeah, isn't the yeah. rut actually? I mean, when you think of it in human terms, you think, oh hell yeah, the rut sounds yeah. awesome. But for a deer, actually, by the time they get done with the rut, I mean, some of them. Some of them, they're weaker deer. They they don't make oh, it. Oh, yeah, they 100%. Die. They're dying. They, I mean, deer are dying during the rut because of of the exhausted energy and, and all that stuff. Stressful. It, it, yeah, stress, fighting. Some get killed by in fights, which is, you know, unbelievable to, like, find a deer. A, a few years ago. It's like the purge. Yeah, I, I shot a buck in, in a, on a morning hunt. I hit him really far back. I came back that afternoon. In between the time that I had shot that deer and came back, I'm walking back to my stand, kind of getting back to where I shot that buck. And I'm walking in, and all of a sudden, I'm like, oh, my God, there's a dead buck right by my stand. No way did that thing circle all the way around and die right there. Turns out, in between the time that I had left the tree and came back, 
There must have been a fight because there was a, you know, nice-looking three-year-old eight-pointer with his neck broken and scars all over him. It was the it was the craziest me. thing I've ever Dude. seen. And yeah. just fresh and dead fresh, by the deer. He you was had still warm. Like I literally, when I was walking up, I'm like, oh, I just found my buck. But no, he had scars all over him. His neck was broke. It was the craziest what thing ever. What do you do in that case? So I called the the warden in that situation to have him come out and like look at the deer. He he ended up he had a lot of stuff going on. He didn't actually come out. He I had known him from like dealings with him in the past and stuff. Stuff you don't want to talk about. <laughs> yeah, you know. Right, back, right, right. Let's not. Back in the, before there were rules. That was, but, a, that was a lifetime ago. That was a different me. Yeah. But, uh, so he actually didn't come out and look at the deer. He did issue me like a salvage tag and I was able to. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Nice. Keep the antlers and stuff. But the meat was like, I mean, the, when, when a deer dies in a stressful manner, they release all of these like crazy, you know, whatever. I'm not oh, a biologist. I don't know. But it, yeah, he was pretty spoiled. Like, really? Even though he was only dead a short amount of time, he was all bruised up. Like, cause I tried to at least get the back straps off him and they were really, really like, you know, bruised meat or like a bruised uh, banana at, a, at the grocery store. You yeah. get those like where, where it's almost like an impact and it's kind of like jellyish. He had that stuff going on. Like it was, it wasn't pretty. And you're certain he wasn't there. Like I, w- with like 100, cause he was, did you yards. find your deer? Then? I did. I did find him right after that. Yeah. So it was super weird. It, I mean, something ha- happened where obviously that buck came in the area after I left my stand. A fight with that buck and assumingly another probably more dominant buck broke out, and that is the result of the rut. That's a, you but, know, Not to get into story time, but I shot a Wisconsin buck during the gun season. Mm-hmm. Pretty nice one. And uh, oh yeah, what for that? me, what, what does that mean? Uh, yeah. It means big antlers. Okay, cool. Actually, oh, okay, well, right. for me, big antlers. For other guys, whatever. But, uh, <laughs> uh, I wish I didn't even bring it up. Uh, but anyway, so I was going to get it mounted, and but one almost like I'd say for sure, like one side and even wrapping around yeah. of his entire neck had these crazy gnarly like pus nodules yeah. all over it slipped hair, yep. uh, you know, and I can assume really only two things. I don't know if he got just in a severe buck fight yeah. and then like multiple puncture wounds and some infection and type stuff. Cause like, it was just crazy, gnarly pussy or potentially hit by a car right. at some point. I, but it, yeah, it was, it was interesting. Anyway, I couldn't uh, use the, I had to get a different cape yeah. for it. Cause the tax room was like this, like this isn't going to work. The whitetail rut is a month of battle followed by the late season, which is three months of starvation. Yeah. Essentially, so they Which come is, out of that, and you're like, you're, then they're trying to put the feedback dazed and confused deer. Exactly. So then they come out of the the rut, and they're trying to build back up everything they lost. So that late season hunting tactics really aren't that dissimilar to what you would be doing in early okay. September. Yep. Yeah. You hunt food sources instead of does. It's food. Exactly. That they're, that yep. they're desperately. And they're usually for. very close to it because they're they're not going to. They're not going to be walking a mile and a half to get to the food source because they oh, just yeah. flat out don't have the energy. So in the late season, if you do find a good food source, that's the time of year to stop and set up right on the food or very close to it because odds are they're very close. intriguing. Which is tricky because oftentimes, you know, those deer are no dummies, right? Mm-hmm. So they're going to bed in a spot. They know they're going to be vulnerable on that food source. At least I feel like they yep. know that. And I guess I'm just going off, you know, a couple spots that I like to hunt. Like, I know when I'm getting in there, I've blown bucks out of there trying yep. to hunt them during the late season because yep. they, they can see my approach, right? Yep, 100%. The other thing with that is, like, even though those deer, like you said, they're, they're vulnerable because now they, you know, if they want to live, they have to eat, right? But versus the early season where they're, you know, you might get a first crack at a deer that's been kind of 
in that summer pattern going out and feeding extremely comfortable and it's nerf life and it's yep. and it's yeah and it's uh short nerf life during that time of year these deer are on red alert yeah i mean they've been hunted from that archery season possibly through the muzzleloader through the rifle or they know yep. what's up right they know it's game on and so uh even though they need to get out to that food they're pretty darn careful about it definitely yeah. definitely all right, now with uh, with a few minutes left, because I'm sure uh, you two could talk about this type of thing forever. I feel like we turned to, a bow hunting, like why bow hunting. Yeah, bring that. We turned like a why bow hunting is cool podcast into a deer hunting podcast. Well, that's yeah, okay. There's nothing wrong with that. Back to bow hunting specifically, though. What kind of bow you guys use? I just got a new bow. It's a Hoyt RX3, and I think it's gonna be really cool. I bought a PRS bow this year. <laughs> what the heck is that? Long range, baby. <laughs> I got a, a new Matthews that I totally like decked out for, you know, with the coos deer hunt this year yeah. and stuff like that in mind. I kind of set it up differently than I would a traditional whitetail bow, and it's got like a fancy sight, fancy rest, fancy yeah. this, fancy that. True, I'm going to be shooting them at 300 yards. A true Wisconsin <laughs> man yes. versus Mark, a foreigner. Wait, what? Oh, <laughs> come on. Uh, anyway. And then I uh, I just picked up a trad bow. Yep, a takedown. Also long with a coos deer a hunt in mind. Long bow. <laughs> also with a uh, with. A <laughs> yeah, not exactly the first choice for many people. Yep. We'll, maybe we'll be relying on your PRS bow out there. Yes. But when it comes to choosing the bow, what what made you choose the bows that you chose? Well, you had to just get the most Gucci bow, the I, most expensive bow, so you just did. Kind of, kind of. So I had I had a a bow pr- prior to this. It was about five years old. Loved it. It was awesome. What brand was it? He's nitpicking at me right now. I had a Hoyt Nitrum thirty. I loved it. It was a phenomenal you bow. You foreigner. Yeah, I know. It shot fantastic. I've killed like. There's another. I honestly have no personal preference right. at all. So uh, I had. Eric killed two like giant bucks last year like with that bow, and he said, I need to make some changes. Yeah, <laughs> I know. I Yeah, I, I shot a bow at, I shot the, the Matthews Verdicts, which I have now at WHCE last year, and like fell in love with the way it felt, and shortly after, my Hoyt was sold, and this was bought. Right, right. And you got so I've got Hoyt. I've got the, the RX-3, so prior can, to can, that. Can you tell me something? When what? you have shot different compound bows, can you actually tell the difference? Oh, there's differences. You know, I mean, I think we've kind of gotten a... To me, they all look the same. It's like somebody who's never shot a gun before looking at AR-15s, and they're like, yeah, I don't get it. They all look the same. Right. Good point. Yeah, fair enough, right? I mean, there's a lot of similarities. I mean, you could probably look at, you know, any compound bow nowadays, and, you know, it's almost like, yeah, there's differences, but, yeah, like an AR or bolt-action gun, there's, there's, you know, there's similarities amongst them. I'm trying... Bows in my life, gosh, I had a, a Hoyt... Oh gosh, which one? It had the red line limbs. That's an old bow. Um, and then I had carbon spider, yep. which I loved. And this one that you got now is also carbon, right? It's a, it's a carbon, yeah. And uh, man, you know, we're talking about late season hunts, and there is, you know, your bow. It's great bow, but he you said know, it. versus uh, aluminum riser, right? Yep. Uh, so I've got a carbon riser, and I just I really like that carbon riser. It's lightweight, warm to the touch. It's though. essentially warm to the touch. So you get in a late season situation where you're holding your bow a lot, which I like to do. It makes a difference. And so as far as like you know, comfort what on your hand and not a riser. freezing your fingers off. So um, that's what you can, hold? 
that's what connects the upper sticks to the bottom sticks. Okay. Limbs. Okay. The straight piece between it's the, the limbs. It's the thing yep. you hold. Yep, yep. Okay. Makes sense. And you guys shoot compound because... I've just always shot a compound because, I mean, essentially, you know, we're talking about it's a more efficient tool. Mm-hmm. It's I, I feel like, you know, I don't want to offend anybody, but, like, it's easier to stay proficient at. So, like, limited time to practice. I think you can get back into the swing of things yep. a little bit easier. There's also more going on, though. Yeah. So, in some ways, there's more, I guess, to go wrong, but there's right. also a lot on that thing uh, that makes things go right. I okay. was I was just talking about this recently with a, a friend of mine who works for the Archery Trade Association. And I, I mentioned like in passing somehow that a, a compound bow is, has a, a longer effective range than a recurve. And he corrected me there and he's like, well, not necessarily. That's all up to the archer. So like you sure. guys are talking with Clay Hayes here in a little bit. Yep. And that guy... His effective range with uh, his recurve is probably further than some guys' effective range with their compound. Sure. So it all ends up in the hands of the archer. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But the takeaway there is the compound is more forgiving on the front end for folks who are just like, like we talked earlier. We want someone like if someone wants to like go bow hunting right now. Let's say they want to go like in a few weeks. You know, go buy a bow at an archery shop. If you buy a recurve, you're probably or a, a compound right off the shelf at your local pro shop. They're going to be able to set you up, and you'll be, you'll be whitetail ready or deer ready, whatever hunt you're going on within a few right. weeks. The Whereas recurve me, is with just, my trad bow. I probably going to be just stump shooting out there and just <laughs> looking for deer. There, there is a, a more, more of a learning curve on the front end, mm-hmm. but I think uh, up once you once you have the front end of it mastered, there's no nothing that says oh because you have a recurve you can't shoot as far as we can with a compound yeah that's up to the person just like you know i could pick up one of the guys's prs rifles downstairs right and i wouldn't be able to shoot it as well as the owner of that gun you know what i mean yeah so i got a trad bow because my brother dave got a trad bow not just be not just because he did but i just thought it was so Eric and I have had this conversation. Before, well, because you're Jim and you like to be different, and right, well, yeah, lever uh, action three hundred eight. We discussed this, <laughs> yeah, lever action three hundred eight, whatever. We discussed this, Eric and I, because Eric has been shooting that old Ruger M seventy seven two seventy, and uh, I keep giving him crap for it. Like you gotta upgrade that thing, man. Yep. And he said, no, I, you know, he just likes the way it feels. He likes that it's simple. It's yep. no nonsense. It's kind of old school doesn't even point. have a magazine that i can lose it, it doesn't <laughs> no it's got a wood stock it's heavy um not as accurate oh wait now i'm mentioning the negative sorry uh anyway but uh then when it comes to guns i tend to like some of the more fancy stuff of course i'm the guy with the ruger american but i'm i'm soon to probably upgrade that yep after five years of trying to show the world that you can do just about anything with a ruger american but then when it comes to the archery, I have zero interest in the compound yep. bows. To me, they are the most boring things ever. And I'm sorry for mm-hmm. those out there who love compound bows. I'm just going to say it now. Mark, I know you're a little <laughs> bit more careful and more strategic get, with the way. I'm not a fighter, Jim. I don't want right, to get beat up. Right, right. <laughs> uh, I just think compound bows are the most boring things on the planet. But then when I saw Dave with his sleek, svelte, classy-looking long bow yep. he's got a takedown one and everything i was like that is cool mm-hmm. i don't know if it was me harkening back to when i was a kid watching lord of the rings and legolas was just machine machine gun arrowing sure. orcs off yep. the castle wall 
but yeah, something about that clicked, so I ended up getting one. But yeah, there's definitely going to be a learning curve. I already yeah. learned that. I've shot it a couple of times, and it uh, what was it like a three foot group at three feet? Yep. <laughs> <laughs> it's very it's quite difficult. So I got to do uh, quite a bit of practice. But uh, then again, I mean that like that's it, part of that fun process, right? right? Yep. I know, like, which I hate to admit that it is kind of fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But the 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 trad bow, like I've got, I also got a takedown like Dave's. Yeah. And you take that thing down. Which actually, I've learned that I don't really want to take it down that much because you don't want to have the strings unravel. Okay, yep, yep. Because then you can changes something. Yeah, anyway. twists and all that Twist, stuff. Yeah, yep. whatever. So I, I probably won't take it down a whole lot. But there's always that option. Exceptionally lightweight. Yeah. Yes. And I, that's we all know lightweight Dave. If you haven't yep. listened to the lightweight podcast from a while back at this point, but Dave is lightweight Dave, and uh, he was probably just. Uh, floored when he first saw the difference in weight between some carbon compound bow versus his now trad bow that yeah. he likes to carry around. Is that, Mark, you talk with him about that. Is that pretty much the biggest reason why I did it, or is he also kind of weird like me and that he wanted to do a, the manual transmission of bows? You know, in my in my discussions with Dave about that, and obviously he can speak for himself a lot better than I can, um, but I think he was drawn to the simplicity of it. Right. Right? Yeah. Like we're talking about just less to go wrong. Like yeah. you don't have to adjust your sight or this, that, the other. Right. I mean, yeah. like it doesn't have a sight. Like Yeah, when I, when, I was in, uh, when I was in college, I remember I got a single speed bike. And when I would go up to the bike racks and I'd see the kids with the 10 speed, 12 speed, 24 speed, whatever speed bike they had and the chain was off. And I was like, yeah, that's not going to go back on real easy. No. Meanwhile, mine get knocked around the bike racks, chain falls off, just whoop, right back up on that sprocket and I get going. Yep, exactly. Yep. You know, versus me, you know, I think the the sight that I'm going to put on my bow, he doesn't even have a sight, and he's like, oh, I love this because it doesn't have a sight. Yeah. And I'm looking at that CBE Engage 3-pin yeah. because it's going to have a slider, and I can dial my sight similar to how you would a, uh, an elevation turret right, on a exactly. rifle scope. You know, so it's all it, it's all in what you're looking for. But, yeah, I mean, I think he's drawn to the simplicity, uh, how lightweight it is, yep. less to go, you know. But, but conversely, a lot more goes into perfecting that craft to be effective with it and confident you know we always you know from a hunting perspective you want to be able to um take that animal cleanly and efficiently and so right you're gonna have to practice and shoot a lot more and yeah the time it's taken him to get effective with that bow out to i would say probably i think the last i talked to him he said to like 20 yards maybe Mm -hmm. he probably could shoot a lot a lot of deer with a compound bow oh yeah but he's choosing to forego that in order to just learn up a cool craft right you know what's kind of funny though i'm gonna start using this term because all of us have these alternate personas see there's bow mark and then there's gun mark mm-hmm. and when it comes to bow mark bow mark likes the toys and the fancy things yep. and the you know yep, the, it's true highly it's, technical yep. he likes to getting stuff tuned right he likes it all custom yep. carbon rifle mark gun mark oh i, I, I 300 wisdom 300 wisdom i want it to come from the factory I want to get factory ammo. I don't want any of that nonsense. That's that's gun mark. Yep, yep. And then you have and then you have gun Eric, yep. <laughs> who likes really really traditional yep. uh, wood guns, wood stocks. And then you have bow bow Eric. Yep. Custom color. Custom PRS <laughs> PRS bows. Yeah. And then you have me with gun me and it's the opposite. Then you go to bow me and I'm I'm like trying to be a British longbowman fighting yeah. the yep. fighting the German, whatever. Mm-hmm. Yep. The yep. Franks. I don't know. I'm making that up now. <laughs> <sighs> what 
what else? I don't know. We talk a lot. We talked a lot about bows and arrows and archery and deer and stuff. Yeah, I think uh, I don't know. There's just there's there's so much to it. The big thing I think to work like if if someone listening to this is thinking about getting into archery, hopefully this made them make that decision. But just go to a place where you can shoot them all. Like, you know, I was just talking with Sawyer the other day. Like, he's thinking about getting a bow and getting into it. And he's like, oh, what's, you know, what's a Matthews going to run me? Or what's this brand going to run me? Like, don't be, don't have a stigma towards any one brand or over the other. Like, go to a place where you can get your hands on as many bows, as many different styles of bows, like, including recurves, and shoot them all and pick the one that you like, you know? Mm-hmm. Because you're... Everyone is built a little bit different. Everyone has different needs. If you're someone who, like, you know, maybe you don't like heights and you like hunting on the ground, so you're going to be hunting out of a ground blind a lot, then you're going to want a short axle-to-axle bow. Mm -hmm. But if you're going out west and you're going to be shooting really long range and stuff like that, then maybe look at something with a longer axle-to-axle length, you know, something that is going to be, you know, a little bit more forgiving for, you know, tighter accuracy out to Mm -hmm. those extended ranges. And just figure out what it is that you want out of the bow and let the bow kind of pick you, which sounds super freaking weird, cheesy, but I really do yeah. think there's different different applications for... You're, you're not going to take a, a Ruger M77 on a deer drive. For that, I got my, well, had my Lever Action 44 mag. Okay. You know what I mean? So you, right. you, you got a different tool for the job. So And there are, there are bows that do it all. Like, you can kind of find the the hybrids that are equally as home in the whitetail woods as they are on the prairie for a you know a antelope hunt where you're going to shoot at 65 yards or whatever mm-hmm. you know right that's a good last call i'd say as uh mc ryan has the blood red screen showing as we're yep. over an hour here it, it continues to grow my last call i'll make uh in order from to give mark some time for his couple is that I already have too many things that I enjoy tinkering with that take up too much of my time, so I probably shouldn't have gotten a trad bow in many ways. But uh, I do like the the tinker ability of it, which you can do just as well with rifles. Yep. But the fact that you can utilize the bow more often for hunting than you can a rifle yep. is definitely attractive. And there's definitely something about the idea of, and I have yet to do it, but I will this year, of going out, and again, like I said, whether I'll be actually taking a shot at a deer or not or just stump shooting while looking mm-hmm. at deer uh, remains to be seen, but the idea of going out in the woods with nothing but a stick and a string yep. and you know a sharp, pointy thing, I mean, something about that is pretty neat mm-hmm. and pretty unique. Mm-hmm. It even brings you further back, which we've discussed many times on this mm-hmm. podcast, the idea of hunting. It's so primitive. Mm-hmm. Definitely. When you go out with a bow and an arrow, mm-hmm. I, I maybe I'm romanticizing it quite a bit in my head or whatever, but something about it's pretty cool. Yeah, mm-hmm. definitely. And so that's what I'll leave it at. If I had if I had 48 hours in one day, man, I'd be reloading all the time. Oh, be, I know. I'd be shooting my bow just like crazy good. I'd be rebuilding cars then at the same time still. Mm-hmm. But alas, I only have half that. You ready? Yeah, I'm ready. Prepared. So here's here are my final thoughts on bow hunting. I think as as humans we like to test ourselves, right? And I think bow hunting adds an extra layer of challenges mm-hmm. into the hunt. I think it offers you a chance to have additional and and maybe uh, different or extra experiences 
with the animals we pursue just because you generally are going to spend more time in the woods uh, just due to the nature of it. You're going to have closer experiences, interactions with these animals. You're going to be able to uh, have uh, calling interactions with these animals. Mm. And I think that just really adds a lot to the overall experience of the hunt, right? Mm -hmm. As far as, you know, in the very beginning, we talked about it being fun, right? Like bow hunting is fun. Shooting bows is fun. Like it is fun. And a nice thing about a bow oftentimes is that you don't have to have the room that you do to shoot a rifle. Heck, I I can shoot in my basement. I can shoot to 17 yards, Mm -hmm. right? I can do that in my basement. Uh, A lot of people, uh, depending on the ordinances in in your neighborhood, which I actually can't shoot my bow out in my yard in my neighborhood, uh, I'd sure like to get that changed. But I'm not saying I've just done it anyway. Me either. But... You could probably just do it anyway. Well, no, I didn't say that either. I, I didn't just kinda, either. I was, I, just leaving yeah. a, I was just kind of <laughs> leaving a statement out there, yeah. actually. Yeah, it's just, you know, take it how you want. But, you know, but a lot of, you can shoot your bow in your yard, right? right. So if you want to get that practice, you can. You don't have to go to a range or, you know, get way out in the country to do that. Uh, if you do live in the country, yeah, you got again, plenty you're of all range. set. Right. You know? So, I mean, you, your opportunity to practice for, you know, for the hunt or just because you like shooting, it's kind of always there. So there's kind of that aspect to it, too. So that's what I got. That's my final. Wow, that was actually like pretty much just one. Just kind of, yeah. I bridged a couple there. Good job. I like it. Get a bow. Whatever one you decide to get, whatever whatever fits you, start shooting. Have fun. Definitely. Go bow hunting. Mm-hmm. I had a comparison in my head, but I'm not sure I want to say it because I feel like I might make more people mad. I was going to say bow hunting is a bit like golf, but I know a lot of people hate golf. But you can't you can't just like go out and just kind of like expect to just go out and swing a club and hit a golf ball off the ground. Like you got to get. But when you actually do it, it's kind of fun. But if you just watch people playing golf, it's kind of boring. And somehow the frustration is part of what you like, right? And then like when you actually do finally get a good hit, one good hit out of an entire eighteen holes of golf is enough to make you come back again. Hunting is like golf. <laughs> no, nope. stop comparing things to golf. I had it. I had it. All right. You, your driving game is one thing. Your short game is another. By doing bow hunting and rifle hunting, you're going to be a better golfer, a.k.a. hunter. Oh, that was pretty good. All right. Next time, Vortex Nation, we will compare hunting and other things that we enjoy to a better sport. Sorry for those of you who do like golf. Oh, geez. We should go through and tally how many people I've pissed off in this podcast. I think it's partly because we're still running on lack of sleep getting back from the Vortex Extreme. Yep. Uh, but, hey, figured what what better day to record a podcast. Yep. Okay. Uh, with that said, thanks for listening, everybody. Happy hunting and shooting. We'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. All right. That'll wrap it up for this episode of the Vortex Nation podcast. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Hit that subscribe button so you can always stay up to date on the latest happenings over here at the Vortex Nation podcast. Leave us a review or comment down below. We want to hear what you have to say about the show, maybe what you like, maybe what you didn't like, so that way we can make these podcasts as good as they can be. You can also follow us on Instagram at Vortex Nation Podcast. We'll be posting about each episode released, so that way you can go back, find these things, maybe grab a little nugget of information that you could take with you to the range, out in the field, or uh, maybe to the kitchen if we're talking about some good food. So 
Again, everybody, thanks and happy hunting and shooting. We appreciate it. Have a good one.